Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus magazine. And tonight's show should be proved very interesting. We have a number of uh, issues that we're taking up. I'll give you a few of them. First, we're going to talk about a question that came up about Rabbanim, and that's a general question that will have a lot of imp- impact on Kashrus. Another, we're going to go on to a question of swordfish, and also about um, universities, colleges, and the, Jewish, and the kosher situations that exist there. We're going to talk about uh, cast iron and the, and the shale of, of whether you have to kosher and how to kosher, uh, if there's seasoned pots, when you're buying new skilled pots, etc. And uh, we're going to talk about what we, what somebody called a uh, little bit of humor here, hopefully still the kosher kitchen. So we'll discuss that. I'm not going to tell you in advance what it is, unless you've seen it already. You don't know what I'm talking about. And we hope to go on to about Haribo gummy candy. And we have a piece here about uh, the rules in a Frosh's challah for the OU. And we also have, this is, by the way, a private email that we're sharing with you. We're going to be discussing the bracha on healthy joy uh, omega power bread. We're going to discuss a, a kashrus lookalike, mamish, the same symbol, and crazy business we just got involved in yesterday. And if we get any further, we'll discuss uh, cough medicine and a few more things I have right here. So... Let's see how far we get. I don't always get through everything. And then they get piled for the next week. So we'll start here first with a, a Shiloh that came up. Uh, you know, a lot of what I give you is what people ask me in the course of a week. And this week somebody asked me a question about a rabbi. So let me tell you what the situation was. This individual uh, was close with a certain rabbi for a long time. I mean, a long time, not 20 years, maybe a couple of years uh, I forgot how many years, a few years, he was close with this rabbi. And then, I, I can't tell you exactly what happened, and I don't want to say too much on the air anyway, but somehow, I think there was a little distance between the two of them. At least this this person that spoke to me didn't feel the confidence in the same way he felt before with that rabbi, and he moved on to another rabbi. Um, and he's calling me up now, because he's making a simcha, and he wants to know if he should invite the first rabbi and whether he has to give him a kibbutz, whether he has to honor him. I assume it's a bris. I mean, what else could it be? You know, <laughs> for a for kiddish, for a girl, it doesn't mom should do. And then and it, it, his children are too young to get married. So I'm I, I guessing that we're talking about a bris. And uh, the question is to whether to honor the other rabbi by inviting him, or at least telling him about the, the simcha. It's not in his shul. And, uh, you know, and, and also to honor him. So this is a very touchy subject, and it touches on a very interesting question. Can you switch rabbis, and how do you switch rabbis, and how do you treat the old rabbi and the new rabbi? It's a a very interesting question, and it's not a simple one, one, two, three answer. And and maybe what I'm going to tell you, maybe somebody else will say a little differently. Basically, it works like this. Anytime you have any rabbi and you want to ask him a question, so I can go to Rabbi X, and he'll tell me, no, 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 you can't do it. You can't. I'm sorry. You can't do it. Then he's still allowed to go to Rabbi Y, 
and ask the same question. And Rabbi Y could say, no problem. And then he goes back to Rabbi X, and he says, Rabbi X, you know, I spoke to another rabbi. I was worried about the problem. It's, it's difficult for me. And I went and I asked Rabbi Y, and he said, it's okay. And he gave me the following three reasons. Now, if Rabbi X says, you know what? That's those are good points. And I don't know if I'm going to tell everybody to do that, but I hear exactly what you're saying, and I, I give you permission to follow Rabbi Y. So then you're allowed to follow Rabbi Y. That's... That's the standard rule. Famous story, I told it here maybe once or twice, Rabbi Zimmerman Zatzal, famous question, but I can't go into the details here because of the, the hour it is, but, uh, but there was a question that came up with a color issue, and uh, Rabbi Zimmerman, and he, and he said he, he cannot decide, and uh, the next day he got a call from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Moshe Feinstein never called himself Rub Moshe Feinstein or Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. He always called himself Moshe Feinstein. So he said, Moshe Feinstein is here, and uh, I want to ask you a question. Did a woman come yesterday asking about a certain color? And uh, he, I said, he said, yes. I said, what did you tell Did you tell her it's no good? And Rabbi Zimmerman said, no, I didn't say it's no good. I said, I can't be Matir. A beze, what Moshe said, a beze. Ich bin Matir. He says, if so, I'm Matir. I'm permitting it. So, so Rav Zimmerman, till the end of his life, always said that Rav Moshe Feinstein taught him that this color is good. So he felt that that was, you know, and he was very careful that he would not say it's no good. He would say, I can't be Matir. I can't, I can't permit it. People have to be careful when they're Rabbanim not to say, Lightman and Olive to say absolutely not. What they should say is, I don't, I don't think you could do it. I don't feel confidence in that. I don't want to suggest that. I want to suggest you don't. It, it has to be in a vague kind of a way because if you say it openly, usher, then it's usher, and then no rabbis are allowed to go. Around. I mean, most rabbis wouldn't go around being mati or something that they knew another person was usher. But it can have variations here and. When the shadows come up about having asked somebody, and you could always try and, and, and explain to the rabbis, you know, what happened and why you went to somebody else. In, in some cases, Rabbanim will tell you, I can't be Mati, maybe you want to find, go to somebody else. Go to a, a more uh, of a rabbi. I had just the other shadow the other day. Somebody called me up yesterday. Somebody called me up asking me a question. And I told them, I don't have enough information to answer you. I want you to go to a certain place. And I told them how to handle it, you know, but because I, I felt limited in what I knew about the situation. And I didn't want to go, I didn't want to deal with it. So that's the reality of the rabbis. Now, what happened here was different because this rabbi, I'm sorry, this young man, he went to this rabbi for years and he asked him everything about his life and, and, and halacha and eitzes. He was like, you know, this was his rabbi. And he used to go around very happy, this is my rabbi. But it, the relationship cooled off. So he went somewhere else. And the question is, did he do the right thing, wrong thing? What's go- the answer is not so simple. But I, would, I answered him the following way. I said, life goes on, you know, 
Everybody, they're in this class, they have this rabbi, and then you ask them a lot of questions and talk to him, and they love him. Next year, they were in a different shear and a different class, and then they love that rabbi, or they don't love that rabbi. Eventually, you get to many rabbis, some you, you enjoy more, some less, some you ask a question here, some there. Very few people really have what we call a Rebbe Muvuk, somebody they learn most of the Torah from, go to them for everything, rely on them completely. So if you have such a person, so can you switch away from that person? So it depends if you don't feel confidence after a while, or he doesn't like you, or whatever it is, it, it, it dwindles. So that's, that's a reality. You go on to the next one. It's no different than switching a class. It's not, you didn't throw him away, and he didn't throw you away. There's some kind of, uh, you know, whatever, fall, falling out. Not falling out, but it didn't continue the same way. You don't have the confidence in him, or he doesn't, uh, you know, he's not happy with something you're doing. Whatever it is, you know, that didn't you move on. That's all. So there was nothing wrong, I felt, to this young man, that he's in a new situation. I said, but when you're making a simcha, you didn't break with the other rabbi. You never had a fight with him. He never told you off. It's just that it cooled. So I said, then you have to invite him to your simcha. You don't invite, okay, we don't invite, you inform him, but you should inform him, you should do it himself, he said, I don't know, I don't remember how I told him, but you should do it yourself, and you should tell him, you know, we'd like to have you very much, and if it's, if it's convenient with the rough to come, da 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 and don't mention about a keyboard, but if he shows up, you have to give him a keyboard, and I said, you don't have to give him the top keyboard, uh, let's say it's a bris, you don't have to make it a sandik. Maybe you can make your new rabbi a sandik, maybe not. But you don't, you don't have to make him a sandik. You don't have to make him this or that. You don't have to say exactly what he should do. But he's there, and if he's an important rabbi, then you should be honoring him appropriately uh, at, the, at the simcha. That's basically what I told this young man. And it's, it's a little bit problematic, because even in the end he said to me, maybe he has to go back to the first, he should really go back to the first rabbi. I said, listen, depends how you feel. If you feel... You're not so happy with the second rabbi and you hold it, the first rabbi is bigger. So then mevatel yourself and go back. But if you, you know, forget about whatever it was and go back. But if you not feel confidence in going back, you don't want to go back, so don't go back. And you never can. You can switch again. You can, I told me in the future you can switch again. Don't, don't feel those so lost. Because what happens is, you see, some people get lost in these things. And they feel that they're various, this, and uh, I'm no good, or, or the rabbis don't like me, or whatever. They get into like, all these machshavas. Don't get so excited. The rabbis are good people. They're trying to answer your questions. Uh, if they don't answer the right, the right away, or they don't answer you the way you want them to, uh, they're human beings, and that's all. They go on. If you're not happy, go on. Uh, you, I tell them, you have to be happy. You have to feel that you're going to a, a chashva person. The Gemara says, uh, if a person is that if you who to learn from, go to the, go to somebody that to you is like a malach of Hashem, like an angel of God. That's who you should go to to learn Torah. Now, in in halacha, you know, it's a little bit different because, uh, or even even an eitzah, you're going to the best person you can find. Yeah, you it's a, he has to win a contest, a social contest. He has to be a winning personality. He has to be the biggest person in the whole world. No, he's, you know, if if he answers questions, he got smicha, etc. You can rely on him. Finished. And I feel very strongly. I know this is not uh, a popular idea, 
But I believe that if you have a Rav and you feel that he is a real Talmud Chacham, a Paisek, a Chashavayid, whatever the words you're going to use, you consider him to be somebody very high level, then don't start saying, but he doesn't know Kashras. Who cares if he knows Kashras? If he know, if he is an er, a real Erlacha Jew, whether he's Talmud Chacham or Paisek or Rosh Hashiva, uh, somebody he taking, he's taking Yiddishkeit very seriously he's trying to utilize his time in this world properly and help Jewish people if he comes to a question of kash, when it comes to the question of Kashrus you could ask him so you'll say to me he doesn't know Kashrus I agree with you he doesn't know Kashrus but he has Yiddishkeit and he's going to find the answer for himself or for you in a proper way so he, he can follow, he can pattern himself after what he does. He shops here, he shops there, he buys this food, he holds from this hashgacha. You could, shop, you could follow him around, do the same thing as him. You can ask him, do we, where do you buy? Where's the rubba? You know, it could be covered. You could do that, or you could just ask him outright. Is it, you, you think it's okay if I do X, Y, Z? Remember, you're not necessarily the rabbi, so he, he may be more machmir for himself than he is for you. But definitely, if he, if you can go to him for Hilchah Shabbos, for Kashrus, for on Kashrus we're talking about, you go to Hilchah Shabbos or any other halachas that are that didn't get to you in your lifetime, and, and, and you rely on him, and it could be life and death situations sometimes. It could definitely be a question of Hilchah Shabbos or some other avera that's that equally as important or worse, and you rely on him. So you're telling me you can't trust him whether or not this thing needs this hashkoch or that hashkoch or whether this is whether you can do the bedikah yourself or not do the bedikah yourself. What is he doing in his own house? He has to deal with all of this. And he has the Shemayim, you can rely on him. That, that's that's my theory. Okay, we we'll go on. Next topic. This is an unfortunate story. I will share it with you and tell you my concerns about it. There is a community, maybe for the argument's sake, I'll skip the name of the city, but there is a university in a town nearby some uh, other smaller towns, big city. It's a, it's, it's a fairly large-sized university. And they have a publication. And in the publication, they had an article. I told you I get everything. And you went, you went kosherous, you talk about kosher salt, you talk about, you know, acting in a kosher manner, and I end up seeing an email um, sent me about, about the article that was written here or there or the other place. That's how it works. So I don't look at all of them, but sometimes I do, and this particular one interested me. It was about swordfish. And this woman who wrote the article supposedly did research, whatever this means to her, and it, it was very disappointing to me. This is a university paper for the, for the Jewish community, Jewish kids on the campus. I shouldn't say kids. The Jewish young men and women on the campus. This is their publication. And there's an article written there uh, about swordfish. And this uh, woman, or young lady, I don't know how, how old she is, she wrote this article, and in it, she basically 
says that swordfish should be acceptable today. Now, that wouldn't bother me because there is an issue about swordfish. I have my own feelings about it, but I'm not going to discuss it here. But whatever it is, you know, this is uh, something that could be taken care of in the, in the Orthodox world. This woman, or young lady, or whatever she is, she says that she is not Orthodox. And she is going to decide the swordfish debate, is it kosher? And she decides it is kosher. She decides she's not Orthodox. She's not kosher. And she's writing this article discussing everybody under the sun. And I think most of you do know that a lot of what we did decide many, many years ago, uh, as many as uh, 50, 60 years ago, it was decided that swordfish is not kosher. And the work that was done uh, by Rabbi Moshe Tendler, Sozain Gazunt, who, is the, who was the brother-in-law of Rav David Feinstein Zatzal, and who was the son-in-law of Rav Moshe Feinstein Zatzal, and a man who has excellent credentials, both as a biologist and a rabbi in a shul in Muncie, and a, 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 a professor of Talmud, I mean a professor, I mean a, a rabbi of Talmud in Yeshiva University, and who had put working on a, 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 a cure or partial cure for cancer, a man of outstanding ability, Rabbi Moshe Tendler, and she took him and just threw him away. And he was the main, one of the main sources of why we don't eat swordfish today. And that, it bothered me very much how she just dismissed him. If I find the words here in the, her article, she said, Tendler, I'm sorry, Rabbi, Do she did call him, Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tendler studied swordfish and did not encounter the presence of scales. Now, he is a rabbi, he is a biologist, not a, a something else, a biologist. I mean, biology is the where you're going to find the, the people who are biologists know what scales are all about. I mean, that's their area is the body and the, and the animals and the, and the fish. He is a biologist. He couldn't find the presence of scales. As such, he came to believe that swordfish was not only non-kosher, but also not the fish written by the Knesset Gadoyla. She's going to discuss with him in the Knesset Gadoyla. The result, Rabbi Tenley began a crusade against swordfish. Well, I want to tell you about crusades. Rabbi Tenley had a crusade about uh, a lot of things. And one of them... By the way, he, he, was, he was, when I, before I even thought of Kashrus, when I was a youngster, I remember the books that he, the, the materials that Rabbi Tendler put out on Kashrus. He was like the leader of Kashrus information before I even, when I was a kid. And, uh, and, he, uh, and he had a war with the Kashrus agencies over tuna fish. And he held, you have to have, and you have to inspect the fish. And that's where the Hamish brand started from. And Rav Moshe held like he did. And this was a, a, a major thing in the conscious world. Till today, most of the conscious agencies don't have 
Bedikas Tol. I'm sorry, they don't have Mashkiach Tamidi and Bishi Israel, but he was for Mashkiach Tamidi. And uh, that's what Rabbi Tanla won one of his wars. And another one was Swordfish, who was fighting against the conservatives, who permitted it, and he felt that were, there were no scales there. And I mean, my goodness, right? This is this is a, this is the man, and she just knocks him off. So this this young lady put this thing out. When I read this thing, I was very upset because she ends off, you know, her final decision. I say, dig in, which means eat it. You know, she decided, even though she is devoutly conservative and not observant of kosher, she said, I. My family and I have never been concerned with keeping kosher. They never thought about it. They never concerned themselves with it. And she is going to decide for the whole world, especially for that university, never. She's going to decide about it, uh, whether it's swordfish is kosher. And she says, dig in. So I wrote a, a, an email to the, to the, the publication. And, I, and, I was, and it was back and forth between, the, between the, somebody over there, I'm not going to tell you who, and, and myself. And I was just saying, I don't really think this is nice and right, and that she's not orthodox and she's going to decide. And the, the young person who works on this paper, I don't know if it's a girl or an, a, a woman or, you know, it could be a man too, I don't know. It, 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 uh, she, whoever it was answered me that I am orthodox. The woman who, who, was, who was answering me says that she is orthodox. But this woman who wrote this article is entitled to do it because it's an opinion piece. Opinion. A non-Orthodox person is going to decide her opinion about whether swordfish is kosher for the Jewish, Jewish kids, boys and girls, in this university. Uh, it bothered me very much. So I wrote a letter, email, whatever, and they said to me, if you want to write a piece, you can do it. But I decided, first of all, it would take me a lot of hours to put it together because I have to come back with something that would completely destroy what she said. And I have to be ready that she's going to attack and that, that the paper will come out for her. I, I, I didn't want to get myself embroiled in it, especially since I'll be lost in the background somewhere. And some of the damage is going to be completely done anyway. And they'll be mechabit her, and I'm only a rabbi and running a magazine, so maybe I'm all nogea badaver, and, and anyway, you know, she did her job already. So I wasn't going to go and argue with her. I didn't feel it would be productive. It would work out. Now, that's the introduction to what I want to talk about. That is only the introduction. Why? Because I read another article in that community, that I'm not going to mention the city and the, and the state. But it's, it's something that's important, what I'm going to read now, because it gives you an understanding of what an out-of-town university is all about for a Jewish child, if they ever want to think of such a thing, and uh, they want to go to that college or university to get a good education, to get a degree, to get a job, da-da-da-da-da. This is a writer or, or the editor or whoever it is from the publication. They're talking about the fact that there's not too much in the way of kosher food on campus. And this is 
unfortunate. Listen to what I'm going to say. I almost, I started to cry, really, when I read these words. Many of the roughly 500 Orthodox students who keep, keep strict kosher are left without a place to die. 500 young men and women are on this college campus and there's no place to get kosher food on a regular basis. I, I, I couldn't move. 500. They're not talking about 20. Not talking about some silly... 500. First of all, there's thousands of Jews then. If there's 500 Orthodox, there's thousands of Jews on the campus. And they says they keep strict kosher. 500 Orthodox Jews keep strict kosher, and there's no place for them to dine. Limited to the kosher cafeteria at Hillel. Now, the Hillel doesn't have meals three times a day. Hillel has a meal, I don't know how often, a week. But Hillel doesn't have, you, you can't just run in Hillel and buy, pick up a, a bag of this or that. No. Limited to the kosher cafeteria at Hillel, whatever snacks they can manage to scrounge from the commons shop or for students who live in apartments, their own kitchens, strictly kosher students cannot enjoy the eating out experiences of other students. In other words, you can't find a place to hang out and eat kosher in this university. You can have your own apartment if you can. You can get your own kitchen if you can. But you're going to get snacks that may be kosher, may be kosher, in the, in the shop they have where you can buy something. And the, you have the kosher cafeteria at Hillel, which does not provide meals three times a day and does not provide uh, some, I don't even know if it is every single day. And whatever it is, it's certainly very, very limited. And that is it. That is it. The closest kosher options for students require a 20-minute drive. And, he, and then the, the, the author mentions a few different cities nearby at least 20 minutes, you got to have a car. Does everybody on the university campus have a car? No. How are you going to get there? You can't get a meal. That's, and that, when the number 500, it hit me right in the head. That's 500, I'm not talking about the people who are not. She says this is the ones who are strictly kosher. Never a lot of Jews on the campus, she said, don't keep strict kosher. And some people don't eat meat, and uh, some people don't, don't eat there. Yeah, she mentions that. So there's thousands of those Jews floundering around in this university with no place to eat, and she's complaining, the author of this article. And then she said there should be a deli, it'd be nice if you had a food truck, and then this and that, but so far, it ends up, she, she's begging the She's begging also that the restaurants that are the 20 minutes away, that they should make a pop-up shop, which means they should come over to the university and, and make a little thing on the back of their car or a little table and just come there and sell us some, some of their meals. It's scary. That's what it means to go to an out-of-town university, to have a conservative Jew who doesn't keep kosher, tell you, dig in. Those are the words, dig in. Eat. 
Don't worry about the swordfish. Forget about the rabbi doctor. Oh, and she mentions in the article, I couldn't believe it, she mentions that, um, you know, kashrus organizations in the United States and in some other country where she quoted, I think, don't allow swordfish. Well, I'm telling you, I have, 14, I have almost 1,500 in the kosher supplement guidance coming out. And I'm pretty sure that not one of them allows the swordfish. But this woman who's not Jewish on this campus is writing to all the Jews, even those 500 that keep strict kosher, and she's saying, dig in. And she's saying that Rabbi Dr. Moshe Tendler made a mistake, and it isn't that way. Now, I have to admit, between you and I, I don't want to go into it. There are different opinions. It has opened up a little bit. Rabbi Heschel Schachter printed an article a few years ago in the Jewish press, and he has a different opinion than Rabbi Tendler. Yes, there is, there is a difference uh, of opinion. I never knew about it until about two years ago, or two or three years ago, whatever it was. I don't think that um, you could just throw away the work that was done 60 years ago and say it never happened and that it never was correct. And certainly, I wouldn't put it in the hands of a person who doesn't keep kosher to decide for the Jews on that campus that, we, that you can't eat it. That you can eat it. That's dig in. I, could, I wouldn't be able to say that. The next topic we're going to be taking up is about cast iron utensils. Now, there's a lot to talk about. And this is a shadow that came by. Someone called me, uh, had a new cast iron seasoned pots, and they wanted to know what to do. So I, I looked into the topic. I was a little surprised. I didn't know how much different sheets there are, how many different approaches there are, and how confusing it is. But let's just start with the simple understanding. Cast iron is a special kind of material, and the, because of what it is, it can get uh, rust, and so what they do is they season the, the, the pots. Very often they season them before you get them. So the seasoning is putting on oils and fats. Now these can be kosher, they could be treif. Sometimes the company will tell you uh, the oils that they're using, and, and if you want to believe them, according to Moshe Feinstein, you should be able to believe them. But that's only if you get that far to be able to find out what they're putting on there. Otherwise, you have to really assume that they are possibly using treif oils and fats. Because their fats are very make it very good. The seasoning is to have a layer on the pot. It, it will stop it from becoming uh, from becoming rusty or whatever imperfections will occur. And it rusting and it makes it, it it makes it better for cooking purposes. So they're selling today pre-seasoned cast iron utensils. And the, the, the concern is we have to kosher it. So to kosher it, we have three possibilities. One is you're going to use hagola, which means you take and you put it into a big pot of hot boiling water. Number two, that you're going to do libun, 
which is Liban uh, Gomor, which is going to put it into a self, uh, self-cleaning self oven where the temperature reaches about 900 degrees. And that would be the same as using a blowtorch. And that would take care of the kashering of these pots. And the third part is, do I have to clean it off before I kosher it? Do I have to scrape off, to the best of my ability, the, the seasoning that's on the pot? Because I don't see anything. You won't see anything. You won't feel anything. But if you scrape, it's going to come off. So the question is, do you have to clean it off before you do anything else? And that, these are three specific questions. The method of koshering and whether or not it has to be cleaned off before. So let's take this slowly here. First of all, we, again, we don't know if they're using tray for kosher, but it's very likely that it's not kosher on these pots. So first of all, that means that something got in because to get it seasoned, you didn't just smear it, you had to use heat. So you got it into the pot. So you, you're starting off with tray for pots. Or it's a shash of a tray for pots, a concern maybe that tray for pots. So we do have to do something. Um, it, some people might say that uh, you don't do anything because it's absorbed and it's not there anymore and, uh, and, it, and the methodology of using the hot, and when they put it through the heats that they used, maybe they kosher it that way. But basically that's not the psak of most of the Rabbanim. And we're going to discuss it briefly now. I'm looking at, first at a piece. If, it's, if you want to look this up, it's very, very kedai. It's from June 2019 from the St. Louis Vod newsletter called Voice of the Vod. Again, St. Louis Vod newsletter from the Voice of the Vod, of the Vod of St. Louis, from June 2019. Issue 8, page 1 starts. Now, the, uh, basically, our question was, did, did, the, did it get absorbed in and... Uh, uh, you know, will will just using hot water be sufficient or not? Now, first of all, before I say anything about using hot water, it's very hard to use hot water uh, to, uh, uh, for two reasons. One is to stick a pot or a frying pan into a big into a pot. Most of us don't own something big enough to stick a, a cast iron frying pan or pot inside another pot. It, it just, we don't own something big enough. You would have to go and find a, a, somebody who has a big pot like that, uh, heat the water up, etc., etc. Or you would have to wait until Pesach comes, and right before Pesach they have these koshering places. Well, that was, they'll maybe, if they'll kosher it for you in the water, I don't know if they'll even do it, they may say you have to do, put it into a, a, a self-cleaning oven. So the that's the technical question. And there's another question, which is very, very important, and this article takes it up. Um, the question is, due to the weight and the thickness of these, of these uh, pots or, or frying pans, they're very thick and they're very heavy, it's, then the metal is not going to get hot right away. Like when you take an aluminum pan, aluminum something, and you put it into this a big pot that you have, that you're koshering, uh, something that became tray from uh, the aluminum. So it takes a second, it gets hot, because it's a good conductor of heat. But because of the thickness of the, uh, 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 and the weight 
of this uh, cast iron material, it doesn't get hot that fast. It takes time. And the time that it takes, you have to have it in the water. <laughs> it's like putting it into, putting something into, into lukewarm water. It's not going to do anything. So the water is hot, but you're not getting the heat in your kale, in your utensil. So according to this, it would t- you'd have to wait a while until it heated up. Yet the long enough for the water has to turn to a boil, and the and the cast iron has to become to the proper temperature, and that's something that none of us are going to be able to do effectively. Uh, the Star K policy. This is something that they're reporting in this article. Uh, is that people should wash the new pot in cold or lukewarm water and then kosher it with Lieben Kahl by putting it in the oven at 550 degrees for 45 minutes. But this may cause it to lose its shine. So that's, that's what the, uh, the Star K policy is, that you put it into a regular oven at 550 degrees for 45 minutes. <laughs> but other people hold that you use either and which means it has to get very hot in that water. Now remember, you have the way that conjuring works is that the water that has to be heated up to what we call rolling boil, that, that the, boil, the bubbles are rolling. You see a lot of bubbles inside. They're big, thick bubbles, not teeny-weeny bubbles, but big, thick bubbles. And that's only going to happen when you keep it a long time on the stove and you cover it over with a pot cover. So now if you take that off, as soon as you take it off, the heat goes down. And how long it retains this din of, uh, of, 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 of reischen is a good question. Now if I'm going to take this pan and stick it in, and then you tell me it's got to stay a lot of time until it gets very, very hot. By the time it gets very, very hot, it could be that the water isn't hot enough to be halakhically doing Haggallah. So I, I can't tell you that that's the easy route. To me, the only way is to, is to put it into a self-cleaning oven. It's the only way I can understand. And we're going to discuss again about the question of whether you have to clean it off, uh, scrape it off or not. So I'm not giving everything here. There are a few other articles I saw, and... Uh, but you can hear all the names and, and you get the players, get a feeling for what people are recommending. If you scrub the cast iron cookware with soap, the seasoning will come off to the point that a fresh round of seasoning is required. So, you, if you, so obviously, it does come off. It comes off with soap. So you'd need to... Uh, you, you, need to cl- you need to clean and scrub the cast iron before you kosher it. That's the, uh, uh, the question mark here. Uh, do you need to clean it off to that extent? So the, the organization that I'm reading from is from the Nevada uh, St. Louis. They say where a non-kosher item is roasted directly onto a utensil, like for, like for example, non-kosher chicken and a pan, the utensil would need Lieben Gummer. Well, isn't this the same thing here? Because the fats and the oils have been directly done on the frying pan. That's what the seasoning meant. So therefore, it should need Liban Gomor. The Shach says that uh, if it's absorbed from a, from a uh, non-kosher liquid into a pot, 
you need Liban Gomor. The Chazan Ish brings many other opinions stating that an absorbed liquid is kosherable by Hagola. So that's really where the action is, whether you hold like the Shach or the Chazan Ish. I'm not going to get lost in it, but we'll read a few pieces of uh, uh, two psukim that exist over here. One is Rabbi Yisrael Belsky, Zeichat Tzadik V'Kadosh Lovracha. He held that the seasoning of the cast iron is considered significant. And he, since the seasoning is an actual layer of fat that can be scraped off, even though it's difficult to scrape it off, Hagola would not be sufficient to kasher it. That's a sheet of Rabbi Belsky's atzal. The CRC for many years had a Av uh, Bastin, or maybe he's called a Poisik or whatever, I forgot his title exactly, was Rabbi Gedalia Dov Schwartz. Unfortunately, he passed away just a few weeks ago. And Rabbi Schwartz held that the seasoning on the cast iron could be removed with soap. It's not tangible material, since the surface of the cookware doesn't exhibit any trace of the seasoning, and, and, and therefore uh, the seasoning is considered to be completely absorbed in the cookware. So he was makel, and he was for Haggallah. But the Haggallah, again, had to be where you, where you get the pot hot enough. Rav Shlomo Miller Schlitter, he is of the opinion uh, he's in Canada. He's a, a, a Paisic here in Lakewood and in Canada. And Rav Shlomo, involved with the COR in Canada. Rav Shlomo Miller is of the opinion that anything that adheres to the surface of a pre-seasoned cast iron pot is considered nifsal miachila. It's not suitable for human consumption since if one scrapes it, it's only going to get totally burnt material is going to come off. And he holds that, that Liban Kal is like Hagala, and in this case we could follow the opinion of the Chazanish that uh, Hagala is good enough, da-da-da-da. So it seems that Rav Shlomo Miller holds that the Hagala is good enough. Rabbi Gedali Schwartz, Chaim held that way. Rabbi Belsky did not hold that way. The Shach did not hold that way. And this is something for you to discuss with your own Rav, your own Poisek. People came to me, I told them a little bit about the difficulties involved, and I recommended that they use the method of use of using a, a self-cleaning oven, and that, of course, they should try to clean off as well as before as possible, and that would mean using soap and using scraping to get it off as well as you possibly could. Well, that concludes where we are there. So, yes, that's why different rabbana will paskin differently. But the concerns are very serious. Even if you hold from Hagola, it's very difficult to make Hagola because it's a big keli and you're putting it into a, a, a pot that's not that great, bigger than it. It's hard to insert it properly. Secondly, you must leave it in for a long period of time. So these two reasons alone, it's better to use the self-cleaning oven to to kosher your pots or whatever, but it would be more appropriate, at least as far as I'm concerned, to, uh, to, to clean it off properly with using soap and with scraping until you get off whatever you possibly can. Listen, we're all, it's, not a, it's not something you're going to do every day. The last part of it I didn't really discuss here, but that is that you have to uh, season it again. So 
anybody, I, I'm not going to go through it here, but it's not, not a big process. You're going to just use some oil and, and, and put it on, and, and it, it'll tell you how to do it. Every, you can get it in two seconds. I mean, I could read something to you, but I don't think it's necessary. If you get to that point, you're going to have to re-season the pot or, or, or the frying pan. Um, I have a lot of other material here, but I'm not on that topic, but I think we've, it's down to the last few minutes, so I'm going to try very hard to squeeze in a few more pieces of information. Uh, this is something, again, you can ask your own rub about. I, on a lighter side, I happen to come across this page, which was put out by Bracha Stein and Chani Yudowitz. They should forgive me for mentioning it. <laughs> they made up uh, uh, stickers for hopefully still the kosher kitchen. Very, very interesting. If you have, if you have a chance to see it, it's a riot. Uh, it's just interesting. I'm going to read to you a few of them. These are stickers that you could find, you know, like meat, dairy, parva. Okay, so they made up other stickers. And they had, this is, um, these are some of the stickers. And you put it on your, whichever keli you need it on. Once parv, now fleshik. Okay, once parv, now milchik. Understandable. Another, another sticker to put on your products, eskarov. Another one that they made up, once fleshik used to cut milchik onion. In other words, once was fleshik, was a fleshik a knife used to cut a milchik onion. Once milchik, now it's been used to, to cut a fleshik onion. Uh, once fleshik, now tray, etc., etc., something that became tray. This is just the, the, the humor here. Another one, forgot to put away with Pesach stuff. Now chametz. <laughs> That's a cute one because uh, very often people will remember that this was a chanet with a Pesach item and they're going to make a mistake and think it's still Pesach when it actually became chametz. Now the Haribo gummy candy I promised you I was going to mention. Very important halacha, uh, very important kashrus note. Haribo uh, ma- makes candy, gummies, that uses animal gelatin and is not kosher. Only special productions that state they're distributed by Paschkes and have a symbol of Rabbi Westheim, or Rabbi Sholem Landau, that are printed on it, are kosher. And they're made with kosher fish gelatin. Some packages found in Israel and other places have a, a sticker saying, Kosher certified by Chug Harambam of France. This is an unauthorized thing. The stick is unauthorized. And it was put out with a Haribo, without Haribo even knowing about it. And certainly not this Chug Harambam of France, if they exist. It definitely, they weren't, it wasn't informed. And so that's an unauthorized symbol. So again, Haribo gummy candies that has Rabbi Westheim's name or Rabbi Shulam Landau, it's distributed by Pashkas, are kosher, and the others are absolutely treif. Now I'm going to read, share with you a uh, small memo. I think it was, it's, it's nothing wrong with it, and I think it's could die to hear it. Someone that I know wrote this letter to the people at the OU. When a food company is owned in a partnership, 
and one or more of the partners is Jewish, does the OU always require for challah to be taken from its baked products? What about its cooked products that were made from dough? What about when there is a doubt whether there's a Jewish partnership? So this was some of the questions that they were asked. More important is the answer. So if you forget the questions, don't worry. The answer is more important. Here's the answer from the OU, which I think is uh, clear as a bell, and I think it's very interesting for you to listen to. Yes, when there is a real partnership of Jewish and non-Jewish owners, the OU requires hafrashas chala, like it's written in the Shulchan Aruch. If there's no reason to assume that there's a Jewish partner, then chala is not taken. In other words, no one explained to, this, to them what you're talking about by a suffix that was a goy there. If Jews own a few shares in a major corporation, chala is not taken, even though the cumulative ownership of Jews of this company can be significant, possibly more than the share of chala. We follow the psak of Igris Moshe, the Moshe Feinstein, that just like one may own a small amount of stocks, even though the company is open on Shabbos or on Pesach and deals with many isurim, because it's not a real partnership, you know, being you know, buying stock. So too, it's not an ownership that is mechuyev in a freshes chala. So the fact that uh, uh, Jews own stock in the company doesn't make them real partners. Regarding boiled dough, donuts, the shach writes to take challah without a bracha. This is important. Donuts need challah removed. This does not come up often, but when it does, that is what is done. However, pasta, which doesn't have atzuras apas, it doesn't look like bread. Pasta does, does not look like bread. The meaning is not to take off challah. I thought that was very clear from now this next one is from Hisaktus Harabonim. This is an answer to the question that I sent because somebody called and contacted me. There's a product which is people like. It's called Healthy Joy Omega Power Bread, and it has the Hisaktus Harabonim symbol from the, from the, uh, from Williamsburg, CRC from Williamsburg. And right next to the, the symbol, it says Birchoso Shahako. It's a bread. That's Birchoso Shako, and the ingredients are golden flax meal. Flax is obviously not hamotzi. Coarse rye meal. Rye is one of the five grains. Wheat gluten, water, yeast, and salt. And the bracha is being asked to make shahako, even though it has rye meal in it. Rye meal is the second ingredient. And the question is, is the uh, is it shahako? So the, the, the uh, CRC answered me, it's shahako. If they say they don't give hashkocha on the bracha, do they then give hashkocha on uh, the bracha? Is sandwich okay? Um, this is somebody else sending it to me. I see that the letter. But in any event, the answer from the Hisaktas I see I don't have the answer printed here. The answer from the Hisaktas is yes. The bracha is shahakol, and that the rice—I mean, sorry—the the rye flour is not flour; it's just a coarse meal, and they and they hold it's and it's not the rove, not the majority. The majority is this flax meal, flaxseed, and other things. So altogether, the bracha is shahakol, and that's the the CRC stands behind that bracha on the joy uh, omega power bread. 
Now, I've told you I'm going to tell you about an unauthorized or mislabeled or whatever. I, I don't know if he wasn't going to talk about that. It's, I'm talking about a look-alike. It took a long time for the British Columbia organization, the BCK, the consciousness from British Columbia in, in Canada, to create a new symbol. And they chose a very interesting symbol. They call it the, um, uh, it's a kosher check. Called kosher check, and what it is is a K, and a check sign. You know, like some, some people say it looks like a V, but it really, if you look at it, you see like a check sign, like a, you know, you're checking something off in the book. You make a little check. That's what it's referring to, a K with a check sign next to it, and that is just a couple of years old. The uh, they put a lot of money and effort into it, and converted everything that they have to this kosher check. So this week, somebody gave me a little present. They sent me a, a kosher certificate that has a K with a check. Looks just like the kosher check symbol. The only thing is, it's from a different conscious organization. The same symbol. It would be a dead ringer. I don't think anybody out there would not think it's kosher check. Nobody. I would have definitely not thought it was a coach check. And I feel terrible because somebody called me recently and they asked me, I don't know who it is anymore, and they asked me about kosher check and I, they told me it's a K with a check next to it. Oh, that's kosher check. Fine, everything's fine. And now I see that somebody else is using the same symbol. The weird, weird world we're living, right? And I mean, you wouldn't think that a check is such a common thing, but this is mamish looks the same exact thing. And the conscious organization is coming from Buenos Aires, Argentina. The truth of the matter is, I tried to look up the company. I could not find it. And then I gave it information over to the people in British Columbia. And they got back to me and they said, yeah, we found out who it is. It's a company w w called UK, located in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And they're using this symbol for what's not called Israel. So, uh, a very, very interesting end to the story. And, 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 it, and it, 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 it makes one think. You have, a, have to pause to think how easy it is for somebody to make up a symbol and use it. And we're in an international world, and products go from here to there. And you never know who, who's located where because the product that they have is, uh, I don't know if it's in Argentina or another country. In any event, this, these are from uh, Argentina and actually it's from Herbalife and they're all dairy. And so they, they're not Chal Yisrael, so they use this symbol for it. Oh my goodness. So um, people very easily could say, oh, K check. Oh, that's kosher check from British Columbia, and they would be completely off base. Unbelievable, and uh, just, just shows to go how, how careful you have to be today. And really, it's not enough just to see the symbol, but you have to, you have to be more, more on top of it. Now, I'll tell you the secret here. This symbol has a little bit of identification. It says around the circle, it says kosherkv.com. 
And this, they called themselves kosherkv.com. Now, I tried to find kosherkv.com, and it came up, if I want to rent, if I want to buy this site, I could buy it. In other words, it doesn't really exist anymore. So they don't have a kosherkv.com website anymore. But the products, and the, com- the symbol says kosherkv.com, kosher certification. Verification, kosher verification. And the V is for, the check is for verification. Ah, it's not for, it's not, it's not, it's not really a check. It's a, it is actually, it looks a V that looks like a check. So it's supposed to be verification. And also, it's like a check mark. So that it's approved. Uh, or can I tell you people, you're going to have to be very careful in the upcoming years. We have to read very well, look for the symbols, make sure they're what I have in my book. The new book is coming out in just a few weeks, and uh, we're, we're, we're the final production of it now. It's hope to go to the printer this week. So uh, you've got to have to look, and you're going to have to examine where the product is being made, and does it make any sense that the people in Canada are doing something out in Argentina? The answer is yes, it makes sense in today's world but you've got to look carefully. I suppose if I would have studied it myself, I would figure it out. But when they call on the phone and they say, oh, it's a K with a check mark next to it. So I thought when I got the call a few days ago, I said to myself, this is not from this symbol here. I mean, we don't know that that's that symbol. But I got a call like that. So my, my answer is, oh, that's kosher check. That's fine. Now, I don't know... What, what's going on there in, in Argentina. I don't really know that organization well, and I, 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 I would not be able to answer it anymore. I would say, I want to find out which Kate with a check are you seeing. That is going to be a big problem. I had a woman, a, a man called me up the other day. Actually, it was a woman called up for her husband, and they wanted to know about a symbol. She's trying to describe it to me over the phone. I said, I cannot over the phone understand what you're saying. She says, like, two continents <laughs> around the, this K. I figured it out now, what she's really referring to. I think I figured out what she's talking about. She's talking two continents. She's probably Earth kosher. But I, I'm trying to figure out what the continents are. People have to be a little more on top of the situation, check it out a little more thoroughly. And when you call the rabbi, make sure you know what you're talking about. I see it's getting tougher and tougher to be on top of Kashrus. Certainly not like it was when we started. When we first started, there were like 18 different Ashkochas, but had symbols. Now, as I t- told you, it's about 1,500. It's getting very challenging to be sure of which the symbol is, which the Kashrus agency is. And then, of course, you have to decide if you like them. So I hope uh, we've been helpful to you tonight. If anybody has further questions, you can reach us at 718-336-8544 or 732-534-9363 or Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. And if anybody would like to join our program on Hilchas Malicha, we have a shear on Thursday nights. Give us a ring and we'll, we'll tell you how to call in. It's a call in. And if you're interested in anything at all, whether the Kashrus Magazine, the Kashrus Monthly, the Kosher Supervision Guide, the Kosher Travel Guide, any of our products, please give us a ring. Let us know what your interest is. Or you can always go online at 
kashrusmagazine.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S magazine.com, and order anything over there. Until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.